This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book. A new series is starting with this evening and we are considering the epistle to the Hebrews. Those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to share with us, you may switch off for a little while while we read together Genesis chapter 11 starting at verse 27 and going right through to the end of chapter 13. We commence this evening a study of the epistle to the Hebrews. We have already recorded studies in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, the Revelation, the book of Daniel, good many parts of the Old Testament. And so we felt that it would be very right to go on because there have been some requests that this epistle should be included in our recordings. I hope nobody objects. The next thing that I would like to say is that this is a, an epistle about which a good deal of controversy has arisen concerning its authorship. One writer after another puts up one person after another. Quite a number of names have been put forward. It has come down to us from the earliest days as an epistle of Paul. And very much like uh, the controversy about Shakespeare, the only one who, who did not write Shakespeare is Shakespeare himself. But almost every other person who lived in his day seemed to have had a hand in it. I don't think it will be a, a profitable spending of time to argue this point, for ultimately, if it's the word of God, it's far more important that we should study it from that angle than if it was the writings of Paul. But as we go through it, I rather think one or two things will stand out so evidently in your mind that you'll say, well, I don't know, if Paul didn't write that, who did? Personally, I feel convinced myself that there is every reason to believe it was written by the Apostle Paul. But that conviction is not yours. But for the moment, we'll look at this epistle to the Hebrews as outsiders, in this sense. Those of us who rightly divide the word of truth, I think would agree that we are not Hebrews in the literal sense. We may be in the spiritual sense. We are not the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So we may read some of God's exhortations and some of his warnings, and some of his statements to this people and do not feel it quite so personal to ourselves until it dawns upon us that all these things happened under them for examples and they are written for our learning. And we can see ourselves very often in the pictures that are drawn here. Perhaps it might be worthwhile to spend a few moments on the meaning of the word Hebrew. Some trace it back to the fact that Eber, which is not spelled with the letter H of always in the Old Testament, E-B-E-R in Genesis 10 was the origin of the name. But inasmuch as Eber is a long way back, and had a crowd of descendants. That would mean if you're called a Hebrew because you descend from Eber, well, there'd be so many of you as to blot out the distinction. I don't think that can be substantiated. The word Hebrew itself, the word Hebrew itself means to cross over, particularly to cross over a river. And they speak of Abraham, the Hebrew, 
giving them a sort of meaning. Now, do you remember in the Old Testament story, God called Abraham while he was in Haran. And of course, if you don't know where Haran is, you don't quite see the point. If you've got the map in your mind, somewhere down here is Ur of the Chaldees, and somewhere up here is Haran. And all the way along here is the river Euphrates, right the way from one end to the other. So Terah made a trek of 600 miles from Ur of the Chaldees to Haran, and when he'd finished, he was in the same country, he was worshipping the same gods that he left behind. It was just like a man leaving one denomination and joining up with another. It was the flesh trying to obey the call of the Spirit and so spoiled it. We might wonder why Abraham didn't obey God to the letter and say to Terai's father, but I was told to leave my father and my kindred and everything I possessed. Well, if you know human nature, and that is to say, if you know your own heart, you know how difficult it is and how easy it is to just mingle a little bit of self with the best intentions of the world. And so we read that Terah took Abraham. Wasn't Abraham took his father? And don't forget in those days the father had a tremendous place in the family. There it was. And there he remained on the wrong side of the river until Terah was dead. Then the call came again. And then he came out. But Lot went with him. And a whole lot of more things went with him, for he was rich in cattle. That's only a play on the word Lot, but still you might remember it. Some people try to take a lot with them when they try to get into the kingdom. And the Lord said it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for some people with all the lot they take with them. And here was Abraham learning that lesson. So the man who came out and went forth, the next thing you read about him, he went down to Egypt. When you turn your back on God, when you start trying to do something on your own, you do get into a conflict, don't you? Here's this man of faith, held up as a man of faith in Scripture. He's saying to his wife, you know, of course it wouldn't be telling a lie, Sarah, because you are my sister. Have you ever? Oh, you say you've never stooped to that? What a wonderful people we must be. Oh, it's so characteristic of human nature to find a text in Scripture to support your particular idea, the same idea. It, I suppose he never bothered to say to Sarah, you are my sister up till now. There was that intermarriage going on, if you see the relationships. And then you know what happened. And yet, God didn't come down upon him like that. Oh, God is very merciful and very forbearing. He could see further than we can what Abraham was going to be yet. And came back. Lot still with him. And then it began to dawn upon Abraham. It began to dawn upon him that he never would be able to see what God had promised while he remained in that sort of company. For God had said, if you come out, I'll show you the land. But he never showed it to him. He never saw it. Until he was separated from Lot. And when that took place, and by that time you see Abraham who had the right to choose the best part. He said, look, take what you want so long as I get rid of you. And when that took place, then the Lord said, 
walked through the land and the length of it and the breadth of it and gave him the dominion, gave him the frontiers. And it's a truth for us too. This element of separation from known evil. He's called in Genesis 14, 13, uh, well, he's called Abraham the Hebrew. And you may remember Joseph is called the Hebrew. And I think, speaking from memory, that Jonah says to the men on the ship, I am a Hebrew. It's nearly always used when you're speaking to foreigners in the Old Testament. They don't say, I am a Jew so much, or I am an Israelite, but I am a Hebrew. Emphasizing this particular thought. And then, of course, we do remember, don't we, that the Apostle Paul, who may have written this epistle, declared that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So he wasn't writing to people and didn't know all that it meant. Have you ever never had a person tell you what you ought to do and you say, goodness me, if you only knew my circumstances you wouldn't talk like that. Sometimes the pulpit is the worst place on earth to air your opinions of what the man in the world should do, because they know full well the man who's speaking hasn't got the remotest idea of the circumstances in which the other man's placed. But when a Hebrew of the Hebrews writes to the Hebrews, well, you say, well, he does know all about it. So that's comforting thought. And then, if the Hebrew carries with it the thought of being someone who is on a move, that's characteristic of the epistle to the Hebrews, they confessed that they were pilgrims and strangers, that here they had no continuing city, and Abraham is dwelling in tents and looks for a city which hath foundation. Well, they're on the move all the time. In fact, we shall see by the structure of the epistle that the whole movement of the epistle is, let us go on, or if we don't, we shall draw back. So I think with those few words, We'll look at the epistle as a whole. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? If this structure before you will stand the test, as I hope it will, that you can just look beneath the surface of a book in the scripture and then suddenly finding it falling into its pattern. I always remember as a youngster at school, sitting and watching something take place in front of my eyes. I had no knowledge of God in those days, but I did have an overwhelming feeling of seeing something that was very miraculous. All that I saw was the formation of a crystal through a magic lantern. The teacher put a blob of water that was a solution of saltpeter or something on the slide, and as the warmth of the lamp evaporated it, I suddenly saw all the little particles going together as though a master hand was marshalling them and they all went in perfect radiation and every one of them was in geometrical relationship so that you could have tested it with compasses, squares and everything else. Well, the same overwhelming feeling sometimes comes as you're sitting because I, I suppose you say to yourself, it didn't come like that in a flash. It, it, you, uh, you appreciate when you put that down on paper, the recipe given for writing poetry that was given to an aspiring young poet, that it was one point inspiration and 99 points 
perspiration. And it's the perspiration that gets some people down. They want it all to come too easy. But when it does come, you put your pen down and your little study turns into a sanctuary for a moment where you sit in the presence of the living God and you see a little of his handiwork. Now that's the way in which I want you to approach this. Don't think it's a clever bit of work. I haven't invented it. If I'd invented it, I should be a clever person. But I'm just like Christopher Columbus, who sailed out and discovered America. It was there all the time. I've only discovered it. And of course, there's a good many creaky bits in it, because I'm not infallible. But as we go through, I'm sure you'll say to yourself, well, that's there right enough. So, should we make that our quest this evening? So that every one of us should have imprinted on their heart and mind the way in which this book is constructed. You say, what's the value of it? Well, to me, I don't know whether it would be to you, it's as though God, sitting behind me or standing behind me while I was reading Hebrews, leaned over and with a blue lead put a little mark once down again under a word. And then he waited to see whether I was going to acknowledge it and turned around and said, oh, thank you, Lord, for that. That's helped me. I don't want us to ignore it. I want us also to turn around to him and say, Lord, I thank thee for that indication. And I'll tell you another thing it will give you. If once you're convinced by seeing it yourself that it's there, all the commentaries that have ever been written in the world can never alter you. Oh, you say, what an obstinate person you must be. Well, it's not obstinacy. It's just sheer conviction. You can't help yourself. So we'll start. We look at chapter 1 and 2. I've denominated it just by a heading, the word spoken. Well, let's see if that's justified. Verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake. Well, this is the word to speak, isn't it? Spake. In time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Well, then this is chapter 1 and 2. Well, let's look at chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels are steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. Do I need to read any more? Surely that's justified. The word spoken. Let's look at the bottom of the chart. The balancing member. Chapter 12, 25 to 13. The apostle has written a tremendous lot between chapter 2 and chapter 12. But whether he forgot, the Spirit of God didn't, who was directing him. So back he comes to the emphasis upon the fact that God has spoken. Chapter 12 in the earlier verses speaks of Mount Sinai, the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire. This is verse 18, 19. And the sound of trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. That's Sinai. Then we come to Mount Zion in contrast, verse 22. And then we have the sequel. Verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. Speaketh. And then chapter 13. 
Verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. That's the way which the apostle sums up ministry. Who have spoken unto you the word of God. Well, I think you'll agree with me that it's there, isn't it? So we can keep those headings on the left-hand side, the word spoken and him that speaketh. We'll come back again to the first two chapters because now we've got two or three uh, verses uh, lifted out. We've got four lines. Thou remainest, thou art the same. How shall we escape if we neglect? And when he brings again the first begotten into the world. Let's look at chapter 1. It says in verse 10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. So that's there, isn't it? Thou remainest. Shall we turn to chapter 12? Keep the chapter with your finger, as it were, so that we can see each one of these in turn. Verse 27. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as the things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. Something that remains, balancing thou remainest. Right. The next one is, thou art the same. Let's go on reading chapter 1. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same. Thy years shall not fail. Thou art the same. Shall we come to chapter 13? Verse 7. Oh, you say you read that just now. I only read a part of it, friends. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith Follow. Strange thing to be told in the scriptures to follow somebody else's faith, isn't it? Very, very seldom. But on the other hand, if it could be said of anybody, this is their faith, this is worth following. Considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. The same. So, we've got, thou art the same. At the other end, Jesus Christ is the same. So that balances. Now we have the question in chapter 2. If the word spoken by angels is steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience receives a just recompense and reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Well, we've asked a question, hasn't it? And it goes on through chapter 3 to show you disobedience and unbelief. Chapter 4, Chapter 5, babies instead of growing up. Chapter 6, urging you on to perfection. Chapter 7, 8, 9 and 10, showing you where perfection is found. Chapter 11, giving you the, the idea of what true faith means. And chapter 12, bringing you back to where we started and says, verse 25, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on earth. See? 
escaped. Chapter 2 says, how shall we escape? Chapter 12 says, you won't. Chapter 2 says, how shall we escape the ministry that was entrusted to angels? Now, what was that ministry entrusted to angels? Well, Galatians tells you that the law was given through the mediation of angels. And Stephen said in, in the Acts chapter 7, when he spoke to the ones who were going to stone him to death, you receive the law by the ministry of angels and you haven't kept it. So, in chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect the law that was given at Mount Sinai through the ministry of angels? Chapter 12, Mount Sinai is there, as we saw in verse 18, 19, and 20, and then we have, how shall we escape if they refused him that spake on earth? That was at the mountain, Sinai. But since then, he will speak from heaven. And how will you escape then? If they escape not, who turned away from him that spoke on earth, how much less will they escape if they turn away from him that speaks of heaven? So there's a consistent argument worked out. And then coming back to chapter 1, we read verse 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now you'll notice, oh, if you have a margin in your Bible, that the translators have put something in the margin because they weren't quite happy about their own translation. Instead of saying, this, 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 and again, and again, and again, oh no, it's this way round. When he bringeth again, that's in the future, when he bringeth again the first begotten into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. When he bringeth again the first begotten into the world, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, angels as well as men, that all the angels of God worship him. Rather strange that God should tell angels to worship his son if he turns out to be only the carpenter's son. I'm not told in scripture that it was right to worship an angel. John was rebuked when he worshipped an angel. Yet God says to the angels, you worship my son. Now you look out, friends, if you have any hesitation about it, for you may be on the wrong side, of course, in that day. But here it is. When he bringeth again the first begotten into the world. Now chapter 13. Verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. He will bring again into the world his, his first begotten. He will bring again, or he did bring again, from the dead, the Lord Jesus. And at that resurrection, Christ was spoken of as, This day have I begotten thee. Well, if those don't hang together, I'm afraid I've no ability to make them. But so far as I can see, those are there, embedded in those chapters, 1 and 2, and find an echo in chapters 12 and 13. Well, now time will not permit us to tally over these too long, so shall we look at the next set? Chapter 3 to 6. Chapter 3 to 6. And here we have the emphasis of the, uh, where does it come? Chapter 4, verse 16. 
Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. I think we'll just look at these together first and then go to the other, otherwise there'll be too many backwards and forwards turning. Let us come boldly. And then, chapter 3, and to some extent a part of chapter 4, is taken up with a series of examples of unbelief. Let's get one point to help us. Chapter 3, verse 7. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw me, saw my works forty years. Then the warning, verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So there we have examples of unbelief. Then then we turn the page to chapter 5 and we read these words, verse 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as of need of milk and not a strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And then we have in chapter 6 that very difficult passage which we shall have to reserve until we come to it, but we'll speak of verse 6. Chapter 6. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. And then we have the emphasis at the end of chapter 14 which I've read that those who are perfect have their senses exercised. That's one of the characteristics. The difference between a babe and a full-grown person is that both the babe and the full-grown person have senses but the babe hasn't got them exercised. So he cries for the moon and bites his toe and all sorts of things until he grows up and learns the distinction. Senses exercised. And then ultimately that dreadful statement in chapter 6, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh. Now, on the, uh, this side in red letters, I've just summed it up on the words, in the words, on to perfection. We get that in chapter 6, Verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, and I'm going to leave that standing as it is, but I hope nobody's going to obey it. There are too many have left the principles of the doctrine of Christ already. But that will wait till we come to it and examine it more carefully. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. So there's the exhortation. Now the balance, chapter 10 to 12, in the red lettering, is the alternative back to perdition. And we get that in verse 37 to 39. For yet a little while, and he that shall come, will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. And this is one of the verses, when we come to it, when we come to it, that seems a long way ahead, doesn't it? We shall find that this, that Paul is the only one, apart from this, Whoever quotes that obscure prophet Habakkuk, the just shall live by his faith. He quotes it in Romans, he quotes it in Galatians, and somebody quotes it here. But it looks as though it's the same man who picks that out three times. The just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, see, 
is the alternative. Not going on. If any man draw back, my soul should have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. Now you've got the balance. This epistle says you either go on unto perfection or you draw back unto perdition. Well, we can't stop to explain either perfection or perdition because we've still got other bits to examine. So shall we look now at this chapter um, 10 through 12. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart. Chapter, in the early section, chapter 4 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. This is, let us draw near with a true heart, because we have boldness, once more, verse 19, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So we're on the same track. It's telling us the same thing, using a little different wording. Now, instead of having examples of unbelief, chapter 11 is crowded with examples of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and then it gives a whole list, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, have you counted them? If you did, there are seven. And then you go through the next lot, and if you count them again, there are seven. And then, I'm so glad the apostle got run out of time, and the little uh, light went on, and, and he thought to himself, oh, I'll have to hurry up now. So he says, time would fail me to speak of, but he crowds in another seven. We'll see all that when we come to it in chapter 11. So there are examples of faith to encourage us, as well as examples of unbelief to warn us. And then we have, instead of instead of having the perfect or the babies, we have in chapter 12, sons as distinct, distinct from firstborn ones. Will you just look at verse 7? Chapter 12. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? So it looks as though it's a very, very, very common experience, doesn't it? I don't know whether any sons in this congregation can look back to their early days. Well, I hope you had a father that chastened you, because it looks as though we all need it. Okay, so. That's sons. Now, after he's spoken about sons, he speaks about something which is very different from sons. He speaks about Esau in verse 16, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now that word birthright gives us the word firstborn in verse 23. We have come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. The birthright and the firstborn are the same Greek word with a little different ending, that's all. So now we've got balancing babes and full-grown ones. We've got sons balancing firstborn sons. Now in this very context, we have the balance of that dreadful heart-aching passage which has caused such a trouble to some of God's people. It is impossible to renew unto repentance. And you met some poor sensitive souls who say, oh no, it's no good. I've sinned in such a way that it's not possible for me to repent. And some of them so hug their misery that whatever you do, whatever you do, they still hold on to it. Well, I've said to them, well, it doesn't matter what you think, friend, if you belong to the Lord, you'll wake up one day and realise that his mercy endureth forever. But what can I do? But here, we've got a, a, a little hint as to what it means 
Let's look about, look at Esau again, verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. It was impossible to renew him unto repentance, for he forfeited his firstborn's position. And Hebrews is not talking about salvation. It's talking about going on unto perfection. So you've been put into it something that isn't there, and when you've done it, you've got a problem that you can't solve. Well, that's obvious, isn't it? And now we had the word exercise, didn't we, in the earlier chapter, that the mark of the full-grown person is that he has senses exercised. So now we shall discover that is in chapter 12. Verse 11. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Isn't that good that God knows that? But grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards. That is an important feeling too. There is an afterwards in God's dealing. There's a goal that he has in view. There's an object in it. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness, full stop, and that isn't truth. That isn't truth. Oh no, I've got to add a bit more. It yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. You see, that other passage which sometimes is misquoted, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, full stop. Hallelujah. Oh, that isn't what it says. It's that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. Otherwise it will. So here, it doesn't yield peaceable fruit of righteousness if you're afflicted and you murmur and you grumble and you go on your own way. But if you're exercised thereby, the discipline is good and it produces fruit, so exercise. And then here we have, they crucify afresh the Son of God. And we read about those who trample underfoot or tread underfoot the Son of God and put him to an open shame. They've trodden underfoot the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Well now time is pressing and I must come to the centre even though we can't do much with it. We go back to chapter six, uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7. And twice over, we have the words, but this man, or this man. Chapter 7, verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, and that is Melchizedek, over against Abraham. Now we'll, in chapter 7, we'll get it again in verse 24, as over against, not Melchizedek, but over against the other priests, who were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable or intransmissible priesthood. So he is a priesthood, differing from that which went before, whether it's Melchizedek or whether it's uh, the ordinary priesthood of Aaron. Now when you look at the balance to this in chapter 10, still contrasted with the priesthood, verse 11, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man... My, that's the point in this, isn't it? Chapter 1, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday and today and forever. Chapter 13, and when you're getting near the centre, it's this man. 
this man who puts all the priests out of office, but this man after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Then the word perfect comes. We go back to chapter 7 and we find there's no perfection in the priesthood, verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, why should they seek another one? There's no perfection in the law, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. There's no perfection in ordinances. We go on here now into chapter 8 and 9 and into 10, verse one for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect and then we've got to the centre where this man this man his priesthood his offering the tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man dominates the whole thing And the essence of Paul's insistence is this. Everything may go. Chapter 1 tells you creation, a part of it, is going to be rolled up and put away. Oh, you say, how terrible. He says, but he remains. He remains. So he says, you see, your priesthood may go, but he remains. The old covenant waxes old and vanishes away, but he remains. And as long as we can say Jesus Christ remains and is the same We're on the right side. Well, that's a message for every one of us, whether we are Hebrews or any other character, isn't it? So I trust we'll take it away with us, whatever else we've missed. He hath said, I will never say, I will never leave thee, neither will I forsake thee. And so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. He remains. He abides. And as long as he abides, I am safe and saved forever.